Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have come here now. May it be that we would allow our minds to be reasoned with with these scriptures May it be that you will explain to us by the preaching of your word and the movement of the Holy Spirit and prove to us the necessity of Christ's suffering and resurrection. May it be, Father, that we would be assured and clear and conscious that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that this Jesus who died and rose again and who is reigning at your right hand is our Savior. May this be so. According to his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I have, instead of three points, I have three questions. That will be the three points of the sermon. I'll have three questions for you to be considering as we go through this short passage together. And each one of these questions will have two answers. And then I hope that you will see that those two answers are identical in many ways. Or they fit a particular theme. Here we have Paul and Silas and Luke and surely others that have left the, the uh, about to say the Philippines, <laughs> Philippi, <laughs> and are now moving along. And they're, by the time they get to Thessalonica, they're about 100 miles away from Philippi, not the Philippines. And you have Amphipolis and you have Apollonia that they go through um, and, and showing us the route that they're going. Now, hopefully, those of you who have been around the word for some time will recognize that Thessalonica is surely where the church is going to be established, and they'll be the Thessalonians, because we have two letters 
uh, to those in Thessalonica. And so it's an encouraging thing for us to already know, oh, this is going to be a place where the church is established. And so we know that this work is automatically going to be a fruitful work from right off the bat because we know just before Paul's death is over, he's going to be writing them instructions and encouragement later on as they have formed a church there. Paul has come together and he has begun to, as he normally did, as it says in his normal custom, to explain and reason with them there at a synagogue. So this is a Jewish synagogue that's made up, obviously, of regular Jews, of God-fearing Gentiles. And again, in the same spirit of what we learn from Lydia in Philippi, we have leading women. We have women that have particular stature, particular reputation, and they are also there. And we'll see this again in when they go to Berea. But as we're here in Thessalonica, we see that Paul has two particular things that he is focusing on as he is reasoning with them. He is explaining to them through the scriptures, and he is proving to them two things. What are those two things that you see there? Lecture time. This is class time. Pop quiz. Any guesses? <laughs> Does it say the word king in there? The Christ. The Christ. So one of the things that he is proving to them, he says, this Jesus whom I'm proclaimed to you. Now you got to think about this. This is one that he has met Jesus and he has people that are going along with him that have had interactions, direct visual and presence of Jesus Christ in their life. And we have him in a real way, but not as in a real way that they had there. This is very not too long after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he's telling them about this Jesus that people know existed, that know what he was doing. They know that he was crucified. They know that he, his body is missing. They know these things happen. And many of them have people that they know and they've heard about the stories that this Jesus, people saw again after he rose from the dead. And so he is making an argument that this particular one that news has been going around is the Christ. And he's in a Jewish synagogue and he is connecting dots. He's saying this one, this person that went through all these things, this person that I'm telling you about is the Christ. What? Is Christ? Who is Christ? What does that title mean? This is so essential. If you don't know what Christ means, today I really hope that you will take this with you more than anything else I say. <laughs> He's the Messiah? Savior? The anointed one is what Christos, the Greek word Christos, is really more so focusing on the word anointing, which is connected to him being the Messiah. And he is our savior because of it. He's going to be a deliverer. What's another one that Mac just said? He is going to be the king, the anointing of the king, the anointing of the Messiah. And would these Jews know what he's talking about when he says 
Christ? They would. Why would they know this? Because the scriptures are talking about the Christ. And so here is Paul saying, and he's using the scriptures and the eyewitness accounts in prayerfully hoping upon the Holy Spirit that they will be able to connect the dots and be persuaded that all the prophecies and proclamations and presentations about who the Messiah is, that they would come to understand that it has been accomplished through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say here for us specifically what particular passages he was using. He may have been using some Psalms. We know that the Psalms point to that. He could have been using Isaiah. We know that Jesus himself used that. He might have been using Jonah because Jesus said, I'm not going to even give you anything other than the sign of Jonah. So he's connecting to that. He may have been talking about Hosea 6. We're not exactly sure, but we know that he was using the scriptures. He may have been using all of those scriptures. He was there for three Sundays. So he was there for at least three, or three Saturdays, rather, sorry, Sabbaths. He was there for three Sabbaths, which so he was there for at least three to four weeks, coming to them every day, explaining to them that this real person that no one's really questioning. And if you even go over to the Middle East today and you talk to people who don't even believe that in Christianity, people who are Muslim, they know that Jesus existed. And Paul is saying this Jesus that everyone knows is existing, it's not a, a, a figment of imagination, is the Christ that the scriptures are talking about. He is the king, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. He is our savior. So he's first making that connection. The first answer to that is that it is he is the Christ, but he is also saying that this Jesus had to do what? He had to suffer. He had to die and be raised from the dead. So those are the two things. You know, what two things was Paul trying to prove is the first question. Paul's purpose in being there in this particular proclamation of preaching is to connect two things. That the Christ had to suffer, die, and raise again, and that that Christ is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus it's kind of redundant for me to say it that way, that Jesus is the Christ. And so he was proving that. He was explaining that. He was debating and arguing. All of those words are being utilized here in the Greek, that it was not necessarily just something that he just said and that everyone accepted, but that he was reasoning with them. He was walking through the scriptures. Their mind had to be engaged. They had to be in the word. They had to be examining and digging through the proclamations of God's word and hearing the preaching. And then the Holy Spirit had to open their eyes to know that this was true. And it says that some of them believed. That some of them were convinced. They were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And then there were Gentiles there who were God-fearing Gentiles that also believed. And then some of these leading women who were there, not a few of them. I love that kind of language. How many were there? There must have been a lot of them. Not a few but it must have been a lot of leading women came to this same persuasion and joined Paul and Silas. 
Now, this is not one of the particular questions for you in the points of the sermon, but a question that I want you to be having in your head as you're thinking about the other questions. I know it's really complicated, but three main questions, and then this is kind of a personal, unspoken, I mean, I don't want you to answer out loud. I mean, you can if you want to, but I don't want you to answer this, this, these questions out loud. Are you a better Christian than the unbelieving Jew in this story? Because we see right here after this, that says, but the Jews, and it's the unbelieving Jews, obviously, were jealous. And then we see them creating a ruckus and a mob. Are you a better Christian than the unbelieving Jew? Why did these unbelieving Jews become so disturbed about this proclamation about Jesus? Why do you guess? Remember what Paul is trying to prove, his two points, and then their response. Why would this be so disturbing to them? Think about the first point in the order of the scriptures about the Christ had to suffer and to die. What do you mean? He was resurrected, but why would the Jews be upset that... He's telling them that he is arguing with them in trying to persuade them that the Christ that they know about in the scriptures must suffer, must die, and raise from the dead. I mean, they said themselves that, uh, that these people were the ones who were trying to turn the world upside down. So then it's kind of uprooting at least their whole life up to this point, if it's true. So obviously they would be upset that he, he's landing this, this title of Christ upon Jesus. But do you think it upset them what he was teaching them about the doctrine of suffering, death, and resurrection? Is it because, is it because they are the ones who killed him? Well, that would be a good, probably a good reason. I, I, they probably physically weren't the ones since they were pretty far away unless they trans, you know, ported over there real quickly. But it could have been. It could have been the very ones. And you know, Peter talks that way to the Jews, but he was a little closer to home at that particular point. They'd have to recognize they were sinners and, and held I think, you're on, I think you're both right. I think Jennifer is getting to more of the heart of the issue, but on a clear surface issue, and we see it. We see it even very clearly with Peter. The two contrasting statements that are very interesting with when Jesus is talking to Peter. There's one time that Jesus calls Peter Satan, in kind of tongue-in-cheek, I guess. What's the right thing? Have you ever used tongue-in-cheek to call someone Satan? And then the other moment, he's saying, what you just said, I'm going to build my church. So what, was the, what did Peter say when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? No, no, no. When he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have to die. He says, by, by no means shall you die. What are you talking about? 
You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You can't die. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. But then what did he say when he said, I'm going to build my church? When he said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so there were two contrasting, but the same at the same time. Here you have Peter who had an understanding that the Christ cannot be the one to suffer. He cannot be the one who's going to die. No, by all means, that's not the, the Christ we've been waiting for. But then he also recognized that Jesus is the Christ. He says, yeah, you, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he said, that's what I'm going to build my church off of. So here we have Paul preaching what Jesus was saying in both of those conversations. Yes, I am the Christ. And I am going to be the one who suffers and dies. And on the third day, be raised again. So the doctrine that's at conflict here are both of those conflicts. And the question for you is, what is your anticipation about who the Christ is? They recognize the Christ to be what? They recognize him to be mighty. They recognized him to be the anointed king with all great authority, to be the one that would truly deliver them from their pain, to be their savior. And for them to even think about how is that even possible, this one that we're waiting on is going to be the one who suffers and dies. That is so contrast to everything that they were thinking about in this victorious mighty Christ. It completely turned their world upside down. And we may go, well, okay, well, I don't want to get your point because I know that Jesus died and I believe that he rose again from the dead. That's why we're here. We're Christians, right? But do you believe that he is the Christ? Think about, it's like we, we're, we think about his death and his resurrection, but the reason why they believe so fervently that it would have been impossible for him to be one to die because he is the Christ. He's the king. He is more powerful than anyone. He has the greatest of all authority. It is insane to think about this one being one who's going to have to suffer and to die. That makes no sense to the one who understands Christ in its fullest understanding. But Jesus was that Christ. Do we have the same understanding that the unbelieving Jews had of Christ? That he would be almighty and all full of authority and all capable, unstoppable, unbeatable. Are you a better Christian than the unbelieving Jew when you understand that Jesus really is the Christ, the true Messiah? But are you just as bad as the unbelieving Jew? Because look what they did in their response. Let's go further here. And the second question is, what two ways did the unbelieving Jews respond? It says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city of authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, who have turned the upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. What two ways do you see here? What are two particular things? What is the heart issue of how the unbelieving Jews acted? And then what is their particular outworkings of what their heart issue led them to do here, these unbelieving Jews? They're jealous. They're acting out of jealousy. They're acting out of jealousy because of what? What are they jealous of? Exactly. I think you're exactly right. That's the, it definitely on the surface initial. I mean, even on kind of a really, and, and maybe this is way too much imposing my own way of thinking into things. I mean, you got to think about it. the leading ladies are listening to them. I mean, they'd be kind of like, you know how guys are whenever it's like the leading, the ladies are listening to some other guy. You're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, I know that's how I am or, you know how I grew up thinking. So, but you magnify that through the fact that this is a religious establishment of people who are serious men who have a particular following, have these guys coming in and saying that Jesus is the Christ. That jealousy is very high. It is very strong. What's the, that's, what's the way that it has, how does it, how does it come out of them? What do they do? They make it a political thing. They turn it into, they, they go and they go to the marketplace, and rabble is an interesting word, and we've heard rabble used kind of in a derogatory sense, and it's, it's a really funny word. It, it really just means a crowd of people, you know, on the initial element of people who are kind of in the marketplace, in the public, but then it's got associations with people who are easily riled up, and then it, it creates a mob, people who are easily made into sheep and and all of a sudden they're following this way and they they may not even know why they're doing what they're doing but they all of a sudden based upon this particular jealousy between this particular conflict that these leaders are having they're able to rile up a mob to go after those who believe y'all ever see anything like that (laughs) in current it's like it's hard not to read that passage and not just you turn on the news for the past few years. Well, forever, really. So you see that there are two ways that they're responding. Is one is in jealousy, and then the other is that they are appealing to worldly decrees and methods. They're appealing to the things that are taught by the world, by the world authorities, by those who have captivated and deceptively have brought forth the minds of those around them. And then they're using the techniques. Is the techniques explaining and debating and talking about it? So well, let's, let's look at the scripture. It's like, Paul, Silas, let, let's come back. I remember you were reading these passages. And I, let's, let's think this through. Let's reason through this. Together. Is that how they respond? 
<laughs> it was very quickly lost. And so how do you, what do you, what are you going to say? which is a mob. And they are appealing to rules and decrees that the world has made, the way and standards of the world. This is very similar to what was going on there in Philippi when they brought forth Paul and Silas and said, you know, they're, they're not doing their customs, they're not following the customs that we have. They're teaching things that don't match the laws and the customs that we have. It's the same kind of appeal. But who are the people who are making this argument? They're Jews. They're not. These are, back in Philippi, it was the pagans that were arguing about Paul and Silas not sticking to the customs and the laws of our particular culture. Here are the Jews, the people who should be God's people, the people who have the scriptures, who are obviously not reading the scriptures well enough or are not reasoning well enough with the scriptures, maybe to the own hardness of their own hearts. But now they are using out of their own jealousy, they are the ones who are appealing to the ways of the world. So the second question is, what? how did they respond to unbelieving Jews? They responded out of jealousy. There was a conflict between the kingdom that they perceived, the kingdom that they desired, and the Messiah that they had been wanting to have for their own purposes. And then it reveals to the world what their kingdom is aligned with because when they cannot reason with the words of the kingdom, they will appeal to the words and the decree of the worldly kingdom. The rules that are being made by the powers and the forces that are opposed to the kingdom of God, to this Caesar. But look at the two ways that the believing Jews did answer or did respond. What are the two ways that they responded? Let's back up a little bit. So from the very beginning of where we see the hopefulness in this particular passage, it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. What two ways did the, believe, the believers, the believing Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the leading women, what did they do in response to the proclamation of the gospel? They were persuaded and they joined. They joined together with the church. Their minds became captive to what? What were they persuaded by? Paul's great wit and oratorial skills that I obviously don't have. What were they persuaded by? The scriptures. They were persuaded by the word of God. They were not being held captive to the decrees of Caesar. And they joined who? They joined those who were proclaiming the kingdom of God, those who were proclaiming the word of God. They joined with them in such a way that they would endanger themselves. We see Jason has now 
housing these people, and it's likely the same Jason that is in Romans. Jason was a fairly common name, so it could have been another Jason in Romans, but most people believe is probably the same Jason. And he has them in their home. He knows that there is going to be likely some kind of uproar, and he still wants to protect them. He's there who is standing at the door when we don't know at that very second where Paul and Silas are, but they are somehow another being hidden away. Jason's willing to take the the beating. <laughs> they drag him out. You know, dragging is not usually a very positive thing. It wasn't like he's like, hey, come with us. We're going to go see the city authority. Dragged him out before the civil authority. And then inside of that being persuaded and joining them, what is a characteristic that the unbelieving Jews accuse the believers to do? What is the accusation that the unbelievers give about the believers? They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they're messing everything up. They're turning the world upside down. And so as a part of their persuasion and they're joining along with the people of God, one of the characteristics of that is that as they align themselves to what they're being persuaded to in the scriptures, and as they're joining those particular people, there's an obvious contrast. There's an obvious loyalty lost to the Caesar of that day. There's a distinction. These are accusations that may not be fully accurate in the sense of how they were going about it. Like they also lied about Jesus when Jesus was a master of being able to show the loyalties of both what God had called him to do as his father, but also to the civil authorities. But Jesus always proclaimed that God was overall. It was always very clear who the real king is. We know that this has always been the fight for those who had opposition to the gospel. It has to do with who is really the king. We are reminded in scripture when we think about the Messiah in Acts chapter 10 verse 38 that God anointed Jesus. There was not really any other anointing. We have John the Baptist baptizing, which is a representation of that anointing, but it is truly God anointing Jesus as the Messiah and the King. We have in 1 Timothy 1 through 15 that the purpose of this Christ is to save sinners. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that this Christ, this King, this Messiah, this powerful, strong deliverer came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul said in his letter to Timothy. Paul is making this connection that the necessity of the suffering and the dying and the raising again from the dead is the essential necessity for the salvation, the true salvation of our sins. That Jesus came to save sinners from their jealousy, from their pride, from their idolatrous holding on to the things of the world. That Jesus is a king that is here to come and to conquer over not just the human bodies of mankind, but the hearts of his people. 
pointing back all the way to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Jesus himself, one of the first passages he proclaims, Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, excuse me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." It's easy to read that passage even, knowing that it's Jesus and knowing what we know about the gospel and to find our attraction to maybe going to different things. It's hard for us sometimes to see the fullness of that, that we are those who must be poor. We have to be those who are brokenhearted. We have to be those who recognize that we are captives, bound. That those who are in this particular state of understanding is that we are those who are supposed to be the recipients of the vigilance of our God. And we should mourn. But we quickly attach ourselves to being those who are going to be the ones who build up ancient ruins and the former devastations. We know from Jesus' time with his disciples that there was this attraction where they wanted to have the vengeance against their captors, their physical captors of the world. It was a political thinking mindset instead of understanding that they are ultimately the enemies that Jesus is going to be conquering over also. The reason why the unbelieving Jews were dismayed is because they could not recognize, like Jennifer said, that they are sinners. That they needed to be saved from their own sin. And that the calling for that victory is through the cross. That that is really the ultimate thing that is at stake. The reason why I ask the question is do we understand that when we are bearing the name Christian... That we are those who are those who have to, one, understand that we have to follow the path of suffering and death so that God may show forth the glory of resurrection in and through our lives. We've already read Paul saying that he counts it an honor to suffer for Christ because that is a proclamation of that Christian life the Messiah life. Do we realize that there must be suffering? There must be moments in our life where God is destroying where the world has taken us captive. 
But then on the other side, do we understand the great honor that it is to be those who have a true king? And do we respond to Jesus as not just our savior and deliverer from vengeance and wrath, but do we recognize him as king, mighty, fearsome, powerful, both in our respect to obedience to his edicts, do we examine the scriptures or do we take some of the scriptures that we like and we mix it in with some of the edicts and the decrees of Caesar? Do we respond whenever we see actions going on in the world and actions before us in our own hearts and our own lives? Do we judge those actions in light of the examination of the scriptures? Or have we done some kind of hybridization like these unbelieving Jews that we have brought in the philosophies and the principles of the world? That we would even dare to say, well, the Jesus that I worship wouldn't say that or do that. When nothing in his scriptures parallel that. That we have actually formed in our mind a Jesus, a Messiah, a Christ that is nothing like what the scriptures have indicated to us. When we think about what is being proclaimed in pulpits or out of our own mouths or on the news today as actions or thoughts of virtue, ask yourself, Have those particular proclamations been examined by the scriptures? Can they be reasoned with by the scriptures? Or are we quick to say, well, I know the Holy Spirit has told me this. No, 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 no. If the Holy Spirit has told you this, does it match the scriptures? And if it looks more like Caesar, then you're still captive, just like these Jews are, the unbelieving Jews. Because true Christians, those who have truly been persuaded, they'll be persuaded by God's word. True Christians will be bound and joined together with other citizens of the kingdom. Where are we at today in modern evangelicalism? Where are we at today in American evangelicalism? We are isolated away from joining in ministry. It's me and Jesus, me and my understanding of Jesus, me and my own personal Jesus. A Jesus that doesn't match with the scriptures, that doesn't have a body because it is detached from other people. And we are today in American evangelicalism, those who look a lot more like proclaimers of the decrees of Caesar than of the true king, Jesus Christ. In many ways, I believe that we are way too much like the unbelieving Jews here, appealing to our birthright, declared to us from scriptures, but not declaring a king who is truly Christ Jesus, We should go back and with humble hearts pray to God and be reminded that 
We must be persuaded by Scripture. We must only reason with Scripture. We must only debate with things that are around Scripture. We must be those who have the distinction. It should be an honor to be able to be those who not only suffer, but also to receive the accusation. These Christians, these people who proclaim Jesus, they're not following our rules. They're not following our philosophies. And we could say... You're right. But when you're saying you're right, understand that when Jason was doing this and the other brothers, they were being dragged into suffering. We find comfort from our proclamations of flipping our nose at the government, from the comfort of our cushy seats and keyboards. But are we in positions and places where we are direct targets of those who are enemies of the kingdom? Or are we more so like these unbelieving Jews who really spend most of our time complaining about what the real Christians are doing? This is a sermon that goes against myself also, or to myself. And I pray that we can now, with humble hearts, understand that this table that has been given to us as a table of deliverance, pointing back all the way to the Exodus when God's people were captive as slaves, that this is a king's table. May it be that we don't come to this table. This is not a fast food franchise salvation. This is a table that was accomplished by a king who suffered, died, and rose again and is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, who continues to teach us through the proclamation of the word, his edicts and his decrees, that we now with grateful hearts, just as this table, come and with glad hearts take this body that was torn apart, this blood that was spilt. Understand, brothers and sisters, that when you are doing that, you are taking on the name of Jesus Christ. Do not do it in vain, and do not do it with the expectations that your life is going to be cush. When you take that bread, you're saying, I'm willing to have my life torn apart. When I take this cup, I'm willing to have my life poured out. For the name of Christ, because my place is already at the throne with Jesus Christ. It has been secured there. There's nothing you can do to the body or the blood that hasn't already been accomplished in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have grand ideas of being an acceptable Christian in this culture today, I'm here to tell you, you're no better than an unbelieving Jew. You might take caution in taking this bread and cup, taking on this name in vain, because this Christ is victorious. This Christ will turn your world upside down. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for the admonishment of your word. Rip away everything that we hold tightly in our little palms that are not of your name. Dig out, grind out any 